Uh, I was born in a small town called Masjid Suleiman in southern Iran. I born in Syria. I was born in Hamburg, Germany. I was born in Kong. I was born in Tanzania in a refugee camp. I was born in Singapore. Guatemala City. I'm from Ireland. I was born in Thailand refugee camp. I was born in Mumbai. Mm-hmm. I was born in Vientiane. I was born in England. I was born in Costa Rica. Welcome to Many Roads to Hear, bringing the voices of immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers to a national conversation about migration and identity. I'm your host, Caitlin Dwyer. Rama Youssef was 12 years old when she left Syria. She was escaping violence caused by the ongoing civil war. But life didn't get easier for Rama when she left the capital city of Damascus and sought asylum in the United States. Conflict followed her from a young age, and she had to learn how to overcome fear and trauma to create a new life. A content warning, this episode contains descriptions of war and violence that may be sensitive to some listeners. Emily Denny has Rama's story. In 2012, Rama was in the seventh grade. Pro-democratic protests demanded an end to President Bashar al-Assad's authoritarianism, becoming known as the Arab Spring. The Syrian government's crackdown on the protests quickly escalated the country into a full-fledged civil war. We, we get to school, we do our rituals, all of that. We go to class. My teacher, my, teacher, my science teacher, actually explaining something on the board. And, and as she's, you know, explaining, other girls are chatting, you know, I'm writing notes to my friends. It's a very normal day. And immediately, like, boom, a bomb goes off. And the whole building shook. The, the, the desks literally shook. I felt like we lost control of of um, our balance that's what it felt like and as you know as time goes by we're trying to comprehend what's going on we're trying to figure out like are we getting are we gonna die are we getting are we getting targeted is at the end it it was a very moment of fear and survival because you could see all the girls like getting up and trying to find places to hide and as the teacher is yelling like get under the desks get under the desk and away from the windows because the first the first suicide bomb actually broke some of the windows and girls even the ones wearing, you know, covering their hair got affected. They got injured on their head. They were bleeding because of the glass. And then, two, you know, two seconds later, another bomb goes off. And then that was the moment where we just like all fell on the ground. It was like a moment where I was looking at my friends trying to see where they are. And at the same time, accepting the fact that, okay, I'm going to die now. Like that was, that was a very, I'm going to die now moment. So then I called my mom and she was on her way to work. And she's like, I already heard the bomb. She's like, I already did a U-turn and I'm on my way back to get you. See, on the phone tells me like, bring all the neighbors, bring all your girlfriends. So we get in my, my mom's car, we piled in on top of each other. Half of us is shaking, half of us is crying. The girls are calling their parents to let them know that they're alive. And my mom drops each one of them um, off and we just drive home. And the whole time I'm like shaking. I-, I couldn't believe that I'm alive. I couldn't believe I'm still in one piece, basically. You know, we know that suicide bombers exist. We know that shootings exist. We know that... All of these war things exist as children, but you never see it coming. I know it happens. I know people die, you know, but as a child, I'm like, it won't be. Why would it be me? You know, why Why would I have to <laughs> die in a bomb? This wasn't Rama's first bomb scare, and it wouldn't be her last. All my uncles had sons, a part of my father. He only had girls. So people used to call him the dad of the girls. I honestly believe that my father truly, like from the bottom of his heart, never cared. But I feel like the pressure of the society that 
his, my, you know, my grandma, my grandpa put on him of like, oh, you need to marry someone else to bring us the son we wanted. You're the, you're the eldest of the family. You need to have a son to carry your name, to help you with your stores, to help you with your business, um, to look after the girls. And obviously that's what they believed in. They believed that a son needs to look after us, me and my sisters. And they also, you know, obviously believed that it's my mother's fault. It's, it's her, it's something wrong with her eggs, something wrong with her. She's the one that is not able to bring a son to him. It was a, it was a very weird aspect of we were not complete, you know, as a family without a son. My mom actually did not tell my father about the gender. She knew I was a, she knew I was a girl in her tummy, but she didn't want to tell him. And she just said, oh, like, I didn't ask the doctor. Let's just keep it a surprise. Maybe it's a son, you know, after having three daughters. <laughs> I remember my father saying that he went to the hospital and he found out I was a girl and he just broke down crying in the hospital. Like he just walked out the hallway, went to the lobby and started sobbing like someone, someone died in the family. And then a sheikh, which is an imam from a mosque, saw him. The sheikh was like, did someone from your family die? Because in Syria, it's very normal for people to talk to each other, <laughs> and, you know, as if they know each other. So the sheikh sat with my father, you know, was explaining to him that daughters are actually blessings from God. Like you should put the traditions aside. You should put the family issues aside. You should celebrate the fact that your daughter is healthy and well. So my father obviously felt guilty for the fact that he was crying, the fact that he was refusing me as, a, as another kid. So he walked, he, he went back to the room and he asked to carry me. And as soon as he carried me, he felt like I, he said, I felt like someone opened my heart, put Rama in it and locked it. Um, and since then, I actually became his favorite daughter out of the three. I mean, out of the four, <laughs> I became his favorite daughter, you know, to, to like spoil, to, I mean, I, I was never, I, I never heard a no from my father. It, it was always a yes. It was always whatever I wanted, what, you know, went my way. Rama's parents separated, but remained married. Rama's mother preferred the city life, while her father liked his village life. So, during the weekdays, Rama and her sisters lived in the city, and on the weekends, they went to their father's house in the village of Madaya, about an hour from Damascus. My father's uh, house was on, um, on the hills, and from the balcony, you can see all the orchards that extend to, they, they basically touch the, the, the mountain that separates Lebanon and Syria, and I think it's called the Lebanese Mountains. As, as a little girl, I remember that I loved going to the village, not because of the life mainly, but because of, you know, the, the weather, the environment, the water. I loved my, I love my father so much. So I, I look forward every weekend because whenever I'm in the village, I get to be basically in the streets. You know, I, I'm helping my father with his clothing stores, running around. Everybody knows me. And I, and I did, obviously, I did love the city. I mean, that's where my half of my family were, which is my mother's side. I loved it there, but something about the being in the village felt so good as a child. So every every Thursday we drive after school. I I would already have my clothes like my clothes packed because of how excited I am. So we just drive up there like an hour and immediately I would I would ask my mom to drop me off by my father's store, which is like 3 minute drive from our house. I wouldn't even go home. I would just, you know, run to see him because of how much I loved it. I would go and immediately like sit behind a desk. I loved I don't know why I just as a child I loved sitting behind a desk. Like that's that's all I wanted. I would just sit behind his desk and act like I'm the seller. Like I want to sell people clothes. And I did sell people clothes, which was very also rare because you don't see like a, you know, nine, 10 year old girl selling clothes in a, in a store in Syria. It's, most, it's mostly older men too, you know. I would sell clothes with him. <laughs> I would convince buyers to buy clothes and I would be like, oh, if you buy this much clothes, my dad said he'd buy me ice cream. 
and like they would end up they'd end up buying more clothes it was like a selling technique i i just loved i loved being in control like i loved being someone that my father can count on and it made me feel like i'm the fourth son he like he wanted because obviously in Syria a son helps you know the dad mostly that's why people want to have a son they want to you know they want the, the kid to hold their name and i and i always wanted to do that i always want I, like i didn't i didn't want my my gender to hold me back from that so going to the village was always my opportunity to prove my father wrong While Rama enjoyed working alongside her father in the store, her older sisters were unable to escape the traditional expectations of their parents. In Syria, it's a, it's a very you know, unique country. There, there's conservative families and there's open-minded families and there's Christian families and there's Muslims that are you know, very liberal in Syria. But my, my family was one of the very like, rare conservative families because it was, it was, again, normal for other families to send their girls to school and to not... To, to, you know, not allow them to marry underage. It was very normal. But then it was, again, normal for families to marry their daughters underage and just, you know, drop out of school and go serve your husband and go serve your kids. I remember I was seven years old when we started accepting families for arranged marriages. And my first, the first sister that got married is my second oldest. So she was 16 at a time. She actually dropped out of school and she just married. But also... Obviously, she's in a happy marriage and all, but when I was a child, that was very normal. Like, that was that was very normal for me, for my family, for who we are as people. I, I actually, you know, ne- never saw a female in my family just strive to finish education. That was never the case. It was always about who can marry the best guy in Damascus, who can marry the richest guy in Damascus, and who can actually get a doctor. Like, that was that was the whole, you know, that was what I grew up learning, that I need to find a rich guy that's a doctor that's that's that that was my basically dream as a child because <laughs> i didn't know any better <laughs> i was closest to my third oldest so when my third oldest got married you know in the night of her wedding actually really hit me because i was around 9 and she she is my favorite one to play with she was always a child in my eyes like that was a child to me that was that was my friend and how can she just one day wake up and get married and leave the house? I couldn't comprehend. Uh, and actually, I, I truly did fall, in, fall into depression when my, when, when my thir- third oldest sister married because I, it's like I lost my best friend in the house. I remember I even have pictures of my journal as a child. I wrote in my journal, how can she like drop out of school and get married? Because we used to walk to school together. So that was very heartbreaking for me. I didn't understand what was bad about being married young because... I thought that was normal, like that was, you know, my destiny, I was going to be next. Rama's turmoil at home was met with turmoil on the city streets. She recalls one instance where she was woken suddenly to the news of a bombing near her home. It was a weekend day. I was just sleeping. My mom comes like rushing, like, hey, wake up, wake up. Did you hear this? Wake up, Rama, wake up. And I'm like, what? what's going on? And she's like, a bomb just went off. And obviously when she says a bomb, we knew it was a suicide bomb because like official bombings weren't, not, not in, at least not in Damascus, did not, you know, start just yet. So I, I and I'm, and I'm like trying to comprehend. I just woke up, you know, from, an, from sleep and 
I basically slept through the, the noise of a bomb. You know, I mean, that's that's how heavy I sleep. But she basically like shook me. She shook me open. And, you know, I, I was so I was so scared to wake up to that. You know, I was like, you know, I was, I was shivering, shaking, like, oh, let's go. Let's get out. Let's get out of here. And she's like, OK, pack your things. We need to get out of here because, you know, obviously the bomb sounded very close to us. So my mom thought another one would follow because that's how usually it works. So we just run. We run to get to get in her car. And we drive off. But the only way to get out of the area we're in is to pass by where the suicide bomb took over, which is under a bridge. So we drive under the bridge. I was I was 12 at the time. And I remember I remember seeing women in the streets running and like hitting their faces like they're looking. I, th I think what I what I saw translates to they were looking for their kids. They're running, they're crying, they're hitting their faces. Like, where's my kids? Where's my kids? And I'm already shocked because, you know, the fact that I woke up something like this and I'm looking around and I see pools of blood. There was blood everywhere. It was so, it was so disturbing. And at some point I actually saw a hand, an actual arm in a pool of blood on the pavement, on the, on the sidewalk. And, you know, by, by the time I saw all of that, my mom shouted, like, stop looking, like, you're not supposed to look. And obviously as a kid, I wanted to look, I wanted to see what's going on. So I already, I already saw, saw, you know, all these things on the sidewalk and we drove off and the whole time I was quiet. I'm like, wow, I, <laughs> this is, this is very, like, this is very real. Rama and her mother made it out on time that day, but violence was not limited to the city. She came close to another clash in her father's village. So we were far from it, but we can hear things, um, can see things from the balcony because of high, because of how high we were. So one day... Um, one day I was actually on the balcony just swinging on my swing and my mom was praying around sunset and a, a clash happened and I, I remember like I stopped swinging. I'm like, oh my God, I, I can hear bullets, you know, like it's, it's, it's nonstop bullets. I actually jump off the swing and I go next to my mom and I'm, I poke her. Hey mom, like stop, stop praying. You know, we're, we're going to get shot at. She doesn't care. She's like, she keeps, she keeps going. She, she says, Allahu Akbar, as in like she's bowing down and she wants to continue her prayer. And I'm, as a child, I'm trying to comprehend, like, how can you be able to pray and put yourself together while there's bullets flying in the orchards, you know? And I just peek my, peek my face behind my mom and I see the orchards glowing. Like, it's like somebody actually sp basically, basically spilled glitter from the sky. It's, it's glowing because of the bullets. And I'm, I'm out here, you know, shivering, shaking as a child. And I like slowly start peeing myself. My mom keeps going. She bows down again. I'm hiding behind her. And obviously as a little girl, I wanted safety. I'm like, I'm going to hide behind my mom. And basically she finishes up. She concludes her prayer. And then as soon as she's done, she like holds my hand and we run inside. She sprints inside. Like, obviously she was scared. You know, she was scared. She sprints inside. She closes the, the door, closes the blinds. And we, we basically run away from the windows and from glass. So I remember as a, as a child, my mom is very faithful. She's very religious and very faithful. So even before the war, it's a very um, common thing where like, you know, Muslims talk about like, if, if you're praying and something happens, what would you do? And a lot of faithful Muslims would be like, I'm going to finish my prayer no matter what. And my mom, I think, was, you know, one of one of these people. She wanted to finish her prayer regardless of her, <laughs> the, basically on the cost of her life. 
I know that she was well aware of it. The world can hear what, like, it was very loud. She definitely heard it. She wanted to finish her prayer. She wanted to, she didn't want anything to disturb her faith from God. That's very empowering to me. As a child, I didn't understand. All I wanted was to escape and run away. Fearing for Rama's life, her mother made the decision to fly herself and Rama to California to go stay with an older daughter who had recently married a Syrian man and moved to San Diego. She just said, I need to take Rama out. That was a very like last conclusion she made. And it was a life or death situation. So she was like, I need to take Rama out. It was a very against survival mode movement. You know, she, I mean, move. Um, she wanted to take me out. My father didn't oppose at all. He was like, okay, take her out for a while. Like I, when nobody knew that I would just leave and never come back. But my father like, my father was like, yes, take her out for to be in a safe place. And he wanted me to be safe. So he put that aside from the fact that he loves me. So she just called up my sister and she, she was like, can, can, is there any way that me and Rama can come visit you for a while? She didn't say like move. She just said visit you for a while. So we got tourist visas and we flew to the, to the United States. And that was, that was when, where it all started. Life in America was very different from home. Speaking little English, she struggled to adjust at school. I got enrolled in Stanley Middle School. And I, my brother-in-law, my sister came and enrolled me and they just gave me my schedule and waved goodbye and left. And I'm like, what the heck am I going to do? You know, I only felt welcome-ish in my ESL class because nobody spoke English. Everybody was lost as, as I was. But as soon as I went to my third class, you know, my fourth, fifth, and sixth, I felt so out of place. I was so outcasted. So I just stopped hanging out with anybody. I was like, I would rather be alone. I would rather just eat lunch by myself. And I would rather eat my Syrian food that my mom made at home. And one day I was e eating, um, we call it upside down eggplant. Um, I think that's what it's called in English. It's basically an upside down eggplant with rice. So I was eating that and I'll be honest, our food is really good, but it doesn't look the most beautiful, you know? So one kid passed by and he, I remember the first word I learned was ew, by the way. The, the kid looked at me like, he like basically stared at my plate and he stared back at me and he was like, oh, what is that? And then I thought he was like complimenting me like, ew, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is good. So then I went home and I'm like, ew, I looked it up on Google and it says, like a feeling of disgust. <laughs> so I, I felt embarrassed. So it was a very, it was a very tough experience, but I, I swear I always found the good. in. Like I would always, you know, even laugh with the kids because not that I would find the good in making fun of me, no, but I was a very laid back person. Um, obviously when I grew up, I learned the trauma of what that caused me. But when it was happening in the moment, I'm like, it's okay. They, 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 people make fun of people that don't look like them because that's what I also knew in Syria. So I accepted that until later I learned that was not okay. Rama no longer feared bomb threats, but life in America wasn't easy. There was family conflict, and so her mother decided to move to Egypt to live with another daughter. I remember very, being very confused. What was going through my head was, who's going to take care of me? Like, who's going to buy my necessities? Who's going to take me to get clothes for school? Not that, my, you know, that's the why I cared about my mom and loved her. But as a child, I, you know, I was very lost and confused. And I didn't feel abandoned. I just felt confused because she kept telling me, like, I'm doing this for you. I'm doing this for you. So in my head, I'm like, yeah, she's going to do this for me. 
but who's gonna take care of me? I was very sad the day she had to leave. She just left the country and I just never seen my mom again. When Rama was in the 11th grade, her brother-in-law got a job in Portland and moved the family there. Rama found a job at Subway where the manager told her about a private high school that supported students in a smaller environment. So she gave me the address and she was like, just go to them and just talk to them. Just tell them who you are. So then I take the max. I go to, I, I go to De La Salle and I uh, actually speak to the president. So I you know, walked to his office. He, he was very confused, like, who is this girl that wants to speak to me? This is, students don't talk to him. I, you know, walk in his office, sit down, and I'm like, this is who I am. My name is Rama. I'm from Syria. And I just spill it all out. I just open my heart and I start crying. I'm like, my mom left me when I was 12. And she said she would be back to get me, but she never came back to get me. I, I think I cried half of the time and I spoke half the time. And at some point, I think he, he almost cried too, you know? And he looked at me and he was like, the applications are are um, nine months past due, but I will not let someone like you go away. At De La Salle, Rama found herself in a supportive environment, where for the first time, she had the chance to dream of a future. She also met a Syrian woman, Hazar Jaber, who took her in. I met this woman when I was a senior in high school, and she slowly started getting close to me, and I slowly started telling her more about who I am. She was very well invested, her and her husband as well, Hani. And, you know, I, I started going to their house every weekend. She would, like, pick me up, drop me back off to my sister's place. By the time, my sister was actually also looking for ways to, like, leave because she wasn't happy in her marriage. And it was still, again, a to- very toxic environment for me. And at some point, I just, like, started sleeping over at Hazar's. And slowly, I just moved in. She just told me to bring all my stuff. And she was like, you're my daughter now. You're part of the family. And I just took a room and I just got adopted to this amazing family with three boys. I felt very safe. And she became, her and Hani basically became financially like responsible to many of my needs. And they're just, they, they truly became like my parents. And I could feel like, I could feel the way she loves me and the way Hani loves me. It's like as if I was truly their kid. I love, I, I can never even explain by words, you know. Um, I'm going to start like tearing up now, but <laughs> um, I just love these people so much. And yeah, I just, I got adopted at a very late age. (laughs) Now a senior at California Lutheran University, she studies political science on a scholarship designed for students who fled the conflict in Syria. Outside school, Rama stays busy, studying for the LSAT with plans to attend law school and become a judge. She is also writing an autobiography telling her own story in her own words, something that she says empowers her as much as she hopes it will empower others. What I, what I saw that happened to my sisters, you know, they didn't, they didn't go to school, no education, and no space to dream for. They didn't dream, and I get to dream. That's been my biggest motivation, and definitely motivation stay away from failure, because obviously failure is okay. You know, you, you fail, you pick up, and you keep going. But I had a vision to keep going further and bigger just to show the world and my parents that there's still time to hope, there's still time to dream, there's still time to make change about yourself and what do you want to do in the world. And my father, you know, I asked him actually even yesterday, every time I, I talk to him, I'm always like, are you proud? Like, are you proud of me? I know that he's proud, but I, because of what I saw as a child, I'm like, are you really proud? Is this what you would want me to do? And he always says, 
yes, like I am so happy that you decided to go against everyone and make a life for yourself in the United States. Many Roads to Here is a production of The Immigrant Story. This episode was produced by Emily Denny, who also conducted the original interview in spring of 2021. Our audio editing was done by Rick March, assisted by Greg Palmer. Our executive producer is the unshakable Sankar Raman. Many Roads to Here is expanding. We're looking for radio producers, especially those from immigrant communities and communities of color, to join our team. We're all volunteer for now, but we've got dreams. Please email mrh at theimmigrantstory.org for more information. For more stories, visit theimmigrantstory.org backslash many roads. Listen live at prp.fm or stream us wherever you get your podcasts.